starting this morning, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 1. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Indeed, the grass withers, and the flower fades, but this word, God's word, will endure forever. Amen. Besides a lovely Christmas lyric, what's the connection between comfort and joy? Do you feel that connection in your own life? For 39 chapters, Isaiah's voice has called out for repentance and turning back to God. From here on, he'll take a different tone, speaking from chapter 40 onward to a different audience and with a different purpose. As with John in Revelation, at some point in Isaiah's ministry, God gave him a miraculous vision of the future. He sees forward, supernaturally, to days he would not otherwise experience. And the record of that vision, which starts here, provides a very incredible structure to the whole of Isaiah. Perhaps you've noticed or not, the Bible has 66 books. 39 in the Old Testament, emphasizing primarily the problem of sin and 27 in the New Testament, emphasizing primarily the glory of God in redemption. Isaiah has 66 chapters. We've read the first 39, and so heard the emphasis on Judah's rebellion against God, the sin problem. Now, starting with chapter 40's opening words of comfort, we have 27 chapters where the glory of God in redemption takes center stage. The gospel of Jesus Christ is both the thematic and the literal centerpiece of what remains in Isaiah. 
This section we're now entering, the the middle chapters, 49 through 57, are some of the most familiar gospel passages in the Old Testament. And right in the middle of the middle section is the servant, high and lifted up, but despised and rejected by men, pierced for our transgressions, who bore the sins of many. The last sections of Isaiah are also distinctly Trinitarian. We're entering into nine chapters that call attention to the glory of God the Father. The next eight praise the glory of his grace in the Son. And the concluding chapters of Isaiah emphasize the Spirit of God working out God's glory in the coming kingdom. This second section of Isaiah is a testament to the glory of the triune God in salvation. It's the section of good news. And to whom does this good news come? It comes to a small, discouraged, and beaten down remnant living in exile in Babylon. It's not Isaiah's contemporaries, but to a future generation of God's people who are looking at the details of their lives and thinking it just doesn't make any sense. Yes, people whose sins are numerous, but also people struggling to have hope, who feel as though their God and his plans have failed and that their God has left them alone. God speaks this good news to a confused, bitter, defeated people, pained with doubts and hopeless fears. And what does God speak to such people? Comfort. Comfort my people. Warren Wearsby, the former pastor at Moody Bible Church and a great teacher of Isaiah, organized his analysis of this morning's passage around four voices. And I found that really helpful. So I want to give him credit as I use it today. He tells us to keep in mind that these chapters were originally addressed to a group of discouraged Jewish refugees who faced a long journey home and a difficult task when they got there. As that remnant in Babylon looked back, they saw their own failure and sin, and so they needed encouragement. As they looked forward to the difficulty of what God would call them to, they needed encouragement. And into that, God speaks. Four four voices are heard, each with a special message for the needy people of God. The first of these voices, verse 1 and 2, is the voice of pardon. The judgment of the exile was self-inflicted. Judah was chastened because of the widespread, sinful, and stubborn resistance of God's grace, this among his own people. Have you found that when you know you're guilty, comfort and promises of a better future are hard to accept? 
Many today silently reject the comfort of God's promises for them because they think they're the odd ones who don't deserve those promises. For there to be any comfort for such people, the voice of pardon must lead the way. One preacher said, the occasion of God's renewing comfort is our failure. We expect it to be our success, our obedience. Look at what we deserve, God, but that's not when he speaks words of comfort. He speaks them into our failure. His word of promise and salvation doesn't come in response to our own personal holiness. It doesn't even come in response to the consistency of our faith, thank God. Comfort comes to our failure as God pardons our sin. John, in his first epistle, captured this dynamic well. He wrote, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You see both sides of the coin there. We should walk in obedience. That's what people who have the light and walk in the light do. And... When we fail and turn to him in repentance, he is always ready to pardon. Judah would be in exile because of her continued rebellion against God. But even amid that exile, as Isaiah is looking into the future of the promise that is not yet fulfilled, this punishment that's coming, he begins by comforting his people with his willingness to forgive. One of the reformers observed it's very similar to what a doctor must do. It's not any comfort to us if a doctor's approach is simply to treat our symptoms. What you want is the doctor to find the underlying cause and to treat that. This reformer wrote, the scourges by which God chastises us proceed from our sins. So if God is to stop attacking us, he must first pardon us. He's got to get to the root problem, which is our sin against him. And he does. Judah has lost it all. And yet they're called to endure this time of suffering by holding on to God's promise of restoration. Perseverance comes through the experience of real hope. Nothing else can make perseverance a reality. It's hard to have hope in our darkest trials. It's even harder when we're in those trials and we can see the clear connection between them and our own sin, as was the case here. But God will not leave us in our sin. He may discipline us, he may bring suffering into our lives for purposes beyond our knowing, but he will never leave us here in exile. And even before he sends them into exile, a voice calls out to his people to comfort them. And that voice begins with pardon. 
The second voice Dr. Wearsby identifies as the voice of providence in verses 3 through 5. The proverbial wilderness is where Isaiah sees Judah in the exile. Isn't that what our sufferings feel like? But that is not where God will leave them. The sovereign God of the universe is disrupting the universe. He's working out his purposes, and everything that is happening is working toward the salvation of his people. Why? Because that's how God is glorified. Verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. That's what God's about, revealing his glory to the universe. Lots of the language in this passage should be familiar to you, both in this context and as John the Baptist prepares the way for the ministry of Jesus. A lot has to happen in the world to get from the people here in exile in Babylon to there in the new Jerusalem, basking in the glory of God. And the point of these verses is that it will happen. It is happening all under the guiding hand of providence and all to the glory of God. The earth is significantly disrupted in these verses. Do you see that? It's no small thing for valleys to be lifted up and mountains to be made low and rough places to be made a plain. I know what a pain in the neck it was to try and level out our front yard, the amount of work it took for that tiny area. And God's doing it with his whole universe. He's making it ready for the salvation of his people. The revelation of God's glory is always a disruptive event. You don't believe me? Go read your Bible. At Mount Sinai in Exodus, the glory of the Lord appears like a devouring fire. The prophet of Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord as a, as a chariot of war to establish God's rule on earth. We just sang about it in our Christmas carols. Kids, what do we sing? Or we, if we watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special, we heard it, right? The shepherds saw the glory of God all around them. And what was their response? They were terrified. Or as Linus says it, sore afraid. Jesus, fully God, disrupted everything when he revealed God's glory. On one end of the spectrum is the transfiguration, where God's glory is blinding and terrifying. And on the other is the glory that was revealed on the cross. As a weak and wounded man by dying, yet conquered death. John's work preparing the way for Jesus' ministry was disruptive. So why are we so surprised when the revelation of God's glory is disruptive in our lives? Another author put it beautifully. Isaiah is talking about the upheaval of true repentance. He's talking about a new moral topography, a new social landscape. He's talking about the disruptive advance of salvation. Put it in plain English. He's talking about depression being relieved, pride being flattened, troubled personalities becoming placid, and difficult people becoming easy to get along with. He's talking about the disruptive advance of his salvation in his church. The voice of providence is what offers us comfort in all this disruption. 
It's what reminds us and makes it known that this is all a part of God's work to glorify himself and our salvation. Let me ask you, if, if you know that to be true, and you do, about the big markers on the timeline of redemptive history, don't you see that it must also be true in your own life? God promised that the revelation of his glory would be disruptive. It was disruptive when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It was disruptive when he sent the Holy Spirit who changed our very experience of God's presence forever. It will be disruptive when Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. And likewise, true discipleship will bring upheaval and disruption into our lives. It will call us to things and to a way of doing things, a way of speaking, a way of thinking, a way of loving that we would not otherwise do. God will interrupt our plans and our lives. He will shake us out of our stupor of death and it will be uncomfortable and it will be inconvenient and it will be work. But it is true discipleship. And the voice of providence is here to encourage us, to call out to us, to trust God in it, that these are his plans being worked out, that the, the torpedo that just struck the plan we have for our lives is God's divine initiative to save us. It's an invitation for us to take comfort, even as he radically reorders our lives. The lives that we were building for ourselves, they had no hope, and they were without God. And his glory entered in to disrupt that, and it saves us. Our lives become reoriented toward his promises. When you feel like what you want is just for God to leave you alone for a little while, I know that feeling. But when we feel like we just want God to, to give us a break, to leave us alone for a while, it's the voice of providence that reminds us that while we're busy grumbling, he's busy saving those who could not save themselves. You and me. He's doing what we couldn't do. I read once that Christianity is not fundamentally challenge. Fundamentally, it's assurance. Because it's not about what we can do, it's about what God promises to do for us. And that is the comfort of the voice of providence. He is saving us. Third is the voice of promise. It's verses 6 through 8. Isaiah contrasts us with God. Perhaps our lack of hope, our moping in bad circumstances, our frequent conviction that God is against us. Perhaps these come because we too often think that God is like us. Verse 6, a voice says cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
The point is, what good would it be if what was cried out, if the promises were only from Isaiah, a man, and not also from God? On his own, Isaiah is like grass. He's like all of us, all people, all the empires of history, all the not-gods claiming to offer us a future. They live for a time, they work out the purpose God has for them, and they are gone. And yet we put our hope in them. You see how foolish this is. Putting our hope in any human promise is utterly foolish. Imagine on your wedding day, you bought a bouquet of flowers and you attached all of your hope that your marriage will endure on the vitality of these flowers. As long as these flowers are beautiful, so my marriage will be a delight. They're beautiful, but they're fleeting. They're grass, they're flowers. You can't put something as important as hope in something as fleeting as grass. And that's the voice of man. The voice of promise cannot come from man. The voice that brings comfort and joy for all who believe cannot be of grass or of flowers or of kingdom or of empires. These things are dust. The voice of promise must be the word of God, which endures forever. And that is why the last voice, verses 9 through 11, can be the voice of peace. The people of God, Judah, us, we need not live in fear because God is with us. The 1560 Geneva Bible has a study note here. It says, Isaiah shows in one word the perfection of all man's happiness. Presence. To have God's presence is the perfection of man's happiness. God's presence is joy. Verse 10, God is with us as the conquering victor, the Lord who comes with might to bring and deliver his people out of exile, sin, and death. But also verse 11, it says God is with us as a shepherd tending to his flock with gentle, personalized care. He gathers his lambs up in his arms, providing peace even when we are the weakest. Dr. Wearsby writes, the good news in Judah's day was the, the defeat of Babylon and the release of the captive Jews. The good news today is the defeat of sin and Satan by Jesus Christ and salvation for all who trust in him. Yet in each, it's God's arm, which is both mighty for winning the battle and loving enough to carry his weary lambs. That's why I, like Isaiah, am confident that we can all do what God is calling us here to do. And I have to say that first, because if I started with our response, what God is calling us to do, we would doubt that we can do it. Because the call, upon hearing his voice, is to be heralds. It's to have our song changed from mourning into joy. Our lives often lack joy 
because we tend to look for hope in the wrong places. A TV show last year reinvigorated the phrase, it's the hope that kills you. But it's really not an indictment about hope as much as where we try to find it. Another teacher said, as we see more and more of life, what confronts us persistently is disappointment. And we become so familiar with disappointment, hope starts to look just plain stupid. We become disappointed in our idols, disappointed in romance, disappointed in our careers, disappointed in the people we trust, disappointed in ourselves. And notice none of these are bad things, but they are terrible sources of hope. And when they have disappointed us, when it's the hope that's nearly killed us, it's into that moment that God's voice speaks. Comfort. Comfort my people. He will be with his people. His glory through their redemption, his very presence that we get to live this life before the face of God, that presence is our joy. Because it's a hope that can never be put to shame. The only hope that can never disappoint us. And that's why the response Isaiah expects all throughout this passage is that those to whom God speaks such a thing would speak themselves. That hearing those words from God, receiving and believing those words from God, his very presence as our joy, we would then joyfully proclaim his glory. In verse 9, he calls the herald to, wait for it, herald, <laughs> to go and tell it on the mountain to proclaim God's glorious salvation for all who believe. We receive that salvation. We store it up as a treasure in our hearts and the mere awareness of its presence and the reality of telling others about it. Those are the essential tasks that transform mourning into dancing. Those are the tidings of comfort and joy. Joy will express itself in many different ways. But the possession of joy is awareness of the presence of God. God is with you. In C.S. Lewis' reflection on the Psalms, he's got an amazing reflection on this. And he talks about how his thinking on the issue of rejoicing and of joy had been all mixed up. He had it all wrong. He says, I thought of praise in terms of compliment or approval. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless you self-consciously stop it. He asked you to consider examples. Don't those in love effortlessly praise one another? Haven't you read Romeo and Juliet? And don't readers effortlessly praise their favorite author? When you're excited about a book or a movie, I don't have to prod you to praise the author. The world rings with praise. Players praise their favorite game. Praise of wines, foods, actors, countries, children's mountains. 
except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner help made audible. And Lewis, looking at the world and looking at his own life and his relationship to praise, he, he took that understanding and he said, the psalmists then, and Isaiah here, in, in telling the redeemed to praise God, they're simply doing what all men do when they speak of what they really care about. He said, my whole difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying with regards to the supremely valuable what I can't help but doing with everything else I value. Praise isn't hard for us. We praise every day. And yet something holds us back, restrains us, distracts us, from praising the most supremely praiseworthy thing in all the universe. It's not too late to add to your 2023 resolutions. So every day, genuinely praise the glory of God. I mean, if Lewis is right, you shouldn't have to try too hard. The comfort of God has come to us in the gospel. Living in grateful obedience to that good news. Simply remembering that it is true. Much less sharing it with others. That is a life lived to the glory of God. That is joy. That comfort. Which God speaks to us in his presence. That is our joy. He speaks pardon, forgiving our sins. And providence, reminding us that what we see as disruption is in reality divine purpose. And promise, the voice of his own word, which endures forever and can never fail. And peace, because our God is with us. Mighty warrior, tender shepherd, our God is with us. Good tidings comfort and of joy.